Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Financial Times. We value your feedback. Please go to ft.com slash listen and fill out a short survey for a chance to win a pair of Bose acoustic noise-cancelling headphones. The FT Hello. Why is the world finally ready to criticise Turkey over the Armenian genocide? Why can't Europe find a solution to its migrant crisis? And how did supermarket Tesco lose £6.4 billion last year? I'm Henry Mance, and this is Best of the Financial Times podcast, a selection of our audio highlights from the week gone by. We start in the London suburb of Hounslow. Quiet, unglamorous, but according to US prosecutors, the origin of chaos in the US stock market in 2010. A flash crash lasting just five minutes meant that shares in some of the US's best-known companies traded at one cent. American prosecutors this week called for the extradition of Navinder Singh Sarau, a sole trader working from his home in Hounslow who is fighting their request. In his short view video, the FT's James McIntosh argued that the case for the prosecution faces plenty of unanswered questions. US regulators claim that he was spoofing trades entering and then cancelling thousands of orders in order to drive futures prices down. It isn't clear how this is supposed to have contributed to the crash, since he's alleged to have turned off the computer programme two minutes before the market went haywire. Turning it off is supposed to make prices rebound, from which a spoofer could profit. It's also unclear how this is supposed to fit with the regulator's own report on the 2010 crash, which identified a large automated sale by Waddell and Reed, Kansas Mutual Fund Company as the trigger for a crash made worse in the aftermath by high-frequency traders. In fact, investors could have learned something from the flash crash, namely that the stock market was about to fall. While the move was clearly so big because of liquidity and individual stocks traded at silly prices, the overall market took only 11 days to fall back to the flash crash low. This, of course, is as the Greek rescue is going on and faith in the uh, US economy was evaporating. Now to Turkey. This Friday, 24th of April, is the 100th anniversary of the beginnings of what the Armenians term a genocide. Many Turks had hoped the date might pass quietly, but as FT correspondent Dan Dombey explains, that hasn't happened. We first of all had the Pope really shocking Turkey by using the word genocide. We then had the European Parliament last week ruling that it was genocide. And this Friday, in what will be a first step for Germany, the Bundestag is set to vote on the issue and is very likely also to declare that the mass killings of Armenians 100 years ago amounted to genocide. This is not what Turkey wants to hear. So why is this historical debate such a polarising issue? Although these killings took place in the dying days of the Ottoman Empire, these are the days that have also caught up with the foundation of Turkey. These are the days that preceded the Turkish Republic, which was formed very much on a nationalist Turkish identity. And the idea that these days are besmirched with genocide is something that Turks are just not willing to accept. The dispute also highlights Turkey's strained relations with Western powers. Turkey's responded to these statements by the Pope, by the European Parliament and others by talking about a conspiracy, by talking about a lack of fairness. And what you see, to be honest, is a much more confrontational approach by Turkey. On the one hand, talks of a worldview that sees itself much more, I think, in opposition to the West. And on the other hand, the mere fact of these resolutions, I think, also speaks to the erosion of Turkey's soft power. Turkey's allies and partners sometimes now, I think, 
have less compunction about labelling this genocide because they get on less well with Turkey. But there are cracks in the impasse. There is a change in social attitudes in Turkey, which goes far beyond the government's official position. People, I think, have really learned from a couple of things. There's been an explosion of scholarship. So many people now argue that it is now proven beyond doubt that there was a genocide due to their work on the Turkish archives. And people are much more content to be living in a multi-ethnic society. This isn't talking about all Turks, but I think there's a very fundamental social change in Turkey, which may be much more important than the use of the G word by Turkey's critics. Talking of which, Europe is facing a humanitarian crisis, with hundreds of migrants dying en route from North Africa last weekend. The EU has refused to fund an Italian search and rescue mission, Mare Nostrum. FT Brussels chief Peter Spiegel looked at why the continent's leaders have struggled to come up with a response. Part of it is obviously money, although the euros involved are incredibly small by EU standards. We're talking about 9 million euros a month. But more importantly, there is a school of thought in many northern European countries in particular that this is a magnet. If you start putting, you know, naval ships or Coast Guard cutters out into the Med to pick up boats, you're going to see more boats. Now, there has not been a huge amount of data that proves that's the case, but that's part of the reason they didn't continue Mare Nostrum, and that's part of the reason they're suddenly getting criticized for not having those naval assets out in the Med to rescue these guys. Ending the root causes of migration is even trickier. These are protracted civil wars that are forcing people to go northward into the Med. We're not about to solve the Libyan crisis overnight to prevent migrants from coming. But there's talk about stepping that up, working with the countries that are actually not failed states and making sure that they are working on controlling their own borders. But there's also discussion about being a bit more, shall we say, military in this. There's a lot of talk about the operations that went on along the coast of Somalia to counter piracy, which included sort of special forces guys showing up and blowing up ships and even fuel dumps of the pirates. Can they do something similar off the coast of Libya here? Back in the UK, two formerly high-flying businesses reported massive losses this week. Wonga, the payday lender whose average interest rate worked out at nearly 6,000% a year, lost £35 million. Tesco, the country's biggest supermarket, lost £6.4 billion. The FT's Robert Armstrong asked Rochelle Toplensky, how did Tesco lose so much money? Well, it's primarily made up of write-offs to their properties, so to Mm. their big stores, which is what everybody was kind of expecting. It's a lot bigger number than what people were expecting. So that's about $4 to existing stores. They had another billion related to 49 stores that they had in the pipeline to open, but they've decided not to open. Mm. Um, And then a little over half a billion on writing down their Chinese joint venture because Mm. the turnaround there has sort of moved further out. I wonder, though, that if by taking this massive write-down, they're in some sense signaling that they can see the bottom. Do you think that's true? Uh, They've actually clearly said it isn't true. So they've guided to say, don't expect a profit improvement next year. So they're not calling for this to be the inflection point. not the bottom just yet. So big write-down has happened, but the mystery of Tesco's recovery continues. Still ongoing. What about Wonga? Regulators have clamped down on its ability to lend to many customers. On the FT's Money podcast, Jonathan Ely and Emma Dunkley discussed where the controversial payday lender goes now.
They've realised they can't focus solely on this one product at one price. Uh, in fact, they've undertaken a massive project to assess their customer base and determine what sort of products are more suitable for them. So this is going to be a big focus in terms of uh, knowing their customer and what's best for them. So they're going to launch, according to sources uh, familiar with the situation, uh, a new range of products that are sort of longer term and therefore more suitable for some of these borrowers who in fact would use a short-term loan but then take out another one immediately afterwards. So they're going to broaden the range in that sense. And they're also going to launch products that can help repair borrowers' credit history. So those aren't are less credit worthy, are able to sort of go back into mainstream banking in that regard. Some of Wonga's rivals are doing even worse, Emma Dunkley said. It's expected that only um, half of the industry has applied for authorization. The rest have probably admitted that they won't pass and there's no point continuing in this less profitable environment. So um, we have to wait and see now over the next few months how many have gone for the authorization process. But it's expected that um, only a few paydal lenders will remain. Luckily at the FT, we keep all of our money under a mattress. That's it for today. You can find links to all of the shows featured in the programme at ft.com slash audio. And our videos are online at ft.com slash video. And please keep giving us your feedback on this and other FT podcasts at ft.com slash listen. We'll be back next Friday. Thanks for listening. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.